All right, I'm going to figure out how to be up here. I've been up here in a while like this. I've, I've, uh, I haven't preached to a live audience in a while. I want to make sure I remembered how. And so uh, if you give me a lot of positive feedback, yeah, that'll encourage me. When we've been recording messages, Brian's pretty silent when I'm preaching. I can't even imagine how he could remain silent. So uh, if you have your Bible, open your Bible up to Deuteronomy. That's the fifth book of the Bible. So go to Genesis and just start counting forward. It's actually what it means. It's the fifth book, Deuteronomy chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. I'll tell you before I even enter in that the idea for the message that I'm preaching isn't, God didn't give it to me in a dream or through revelation that was just that one-on-one pipeline. This is a message that I found of uh, somebody I deeply respect. I won't worry about telling you who to name drop or to distract you. But um, Deuteronomy 1, verses 6 to 8. The Lord our God said to us in Horeb. By the way, Horeb is... Most pretty much synonymous with Sinai, and so when you hear Horeb, it's Sinai, you know, and so the the Lord our God said to us while we were at Sinai, you have stayed long enough at this mountain, turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the sea coast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land... Before you, go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. What's that land called in short? The promised land. Let's pray. Lord, would you take this word and pour it into our hearts? Would you take this passage and pour it into our hearts? We, we borrow this passage from our Jewish family for our own application, Lord, not because we take it from them, but because we're grafted into it. And we ask, Lord, that you would seal our hearts with the, the, the depth of your word and the beauty of your word and the fertilizer that's your word, that you would cause uh, the seed to go down into soil and to grow and, to, bear and to, to take root and to bear fruit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have... Um, been thinking about how I wanted to even deliver a message. It's, a, I, I think, a pretty serious message, but uh, I want to deliver it in an informal way. And I guess what I mean by that is, you know, you could deliver an informal message uh, in a very, uh, uh, or a formal message in a very, inf- you know, non-serious, funny way. You know, there's all kinds of ways to, 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 to communicate. But I don't want to pretend like I'm speaking before, you know, a, a congressional panel or something like this. We're family. And the image that I have all the time as, as we gather together is of a Thanksgiving table. For me, the, fa- the table has always been a place of, of welcome, and it's always been a place of honesty, and it's been a place of depth and time. Um, in, my, in my family, we spent hours at the table. Maybe that wasn't your kid. When I was a little kid, I couldn't stand it because my mom wouldn't let us get up at, when I was done eating, and the, my friends were outside playing. We sat at the table, and we talked, and... Uh, I didn't like it as a kid, but it got into me, and I, have, and I believe it's of the Lord. And so I want to speak today as though we're sitting at the table. 
tell you a bit about where I've been as well in order to get to where I'm going. Um, this has been, you know, people will write things like, hey, 2019 or hey, 2017, you know, and they kind of are mad at the year. And I always roll my eyes at that kind of thinking, but I'm convinced that it's worth doing in 2020. <laughs> this has not been a great year. Amen? Um, and I believe the Lord has allowed us to, if we're honest, enter into a season of lament. Now, I do believe it's the unique deposit of Christians, of followers of Jesus, to do, as Paul says, to lament with rejoicing. It's a crazy concept. Uh, but I do believe that we are, in fact, walking through great loss. And I asked the Lord for a picture of this. I was really struggling with some of the feelings I was having. And he reminded me not just of a general idea, but of a very specific idea. It was the, the, the funeral of a believer that I was part of that was one of the most beautiful, confusing things I'd ever been to because I've never seen so much sorrow in one room and so much joy in one room. And let me just tell you that grief and lament has to do with loss. And, and I don't want to try to name your loss this year. And I'm also not trying to put something on you. But let me just tell you in the life of our church that some of the things that are, that are, that, that are touching me in this way. I miss Eli. And can you imagine that in June we've almost forgotten him because of all the things that are happening in the world? I know that his parents and his family haven't, and I know that we haven't, but can you imagine so much would happen in the world that that would seem so distant? I miss that boy. If you don't know what I'm talking about, a young, a 10-year-old boy in our congregation was tragically killed in January. And it seems so, doesn't it seem like years ago now? I, I announced in February that I was transitioning out as senior pastor, which maybe doesn't bring you a lot of sadness, but it, it, it brings me uh, it's some loss in me because this is, this is a dream job. And, and uh, even as I'm joyful and full of confidence in what we're doing, particularly in, in, the, in the leadership that's, that's coming up, you know, with, with Brian and Carrie and Kevin and Kayla and all of you, and we're leading at the edges in house groups. And, you know, when the, if any of you go out and do something, you are our church going out to do it, you know. And so I'm so thrilled with what I'm seeing in that regard. But you don't have to join me in this one. For me, there's a sense of still like, ugh. And it's not going according to plan. Because I thought it would just go smoothly and I'd preach some nice messages and we'd all ride off into the sunset, so to speak. Then there's this little thing called coronavirus that I still don't know what to make of it. And I'm an extrovert, so um, I'm a pent-up preacher right now. I haven't gone anywhere since the day we sat out in, uh, well, that's not true. I went to Tampa to help my son move into his house, and that's, just, that's the only thing I've done in whatever, however many months, and, and, uh, and I feel it, you know, uh, and I just, I, you know, I don't want to make anybody unsafe, but I want to hug everybody. I want to hug everybody. <laughs> um. I helped a group of, uh, well, a couple different settings, probably 150 different missionaries, walk through an exercise of lament 
as, as we're all experiencing different things in different parts of the world in different ways. And when we got together to plan this service, George Floyd was still alive. So we hadn't even considered the racial tension, that the bonfire of racial tension that now exists in our country. And when I gathered with missionaries around the world, those who were American missionaries who were serving far afield, the most significant aspect of sorrow and loss and pain that they were feeling wasn't about any of these other issues. It was about racial tension and unrest in our country. That's the thing that they most wanted to process. It wasn't even on the radar screen when we planned it. I woke up this morning to look at our rain gauge. It was at four and a half or five inches, and when I came left here, it was at eight, or left to come up here, it was at eight. And so now I'm thinking hurricanes have me anxious, you know? Um, but it is our deposit, isn't it, to be honest about our feelings and at the same way to, re, to, to trust the goodness of God to, to, to provide in those places. And so it's with that framework that I want to enter into an honest conversation with us specifically about the racial tension that exists. Would we all agree? I mean, we can agree to disagree. I love diversity within family. I love, I don't believe that unity means unanimity. I don't think we have to be unanimous on everything in our lives in order to have unity with each other. We can sit at a table and disagree soundly and love each other. I, I don't mind criticism. I learn from it. And so... Wouldn't we all agree, though, that there, at least agree that there is substantial racial tension that still exists in our land? At least we'd agree on that, wouldn't we? And I want to jump into that to, and, and I just, I have to kind of tell you where I come from in this. Most of my spiritual formation and, and significance was through white pastors and leaders like Dr. Maxie Dunham and Dr. Robert Tuttle, who were men who grew up during the civil rights movement and lost plenty as a result of, of taking a stand for things in the 60s. Um, and these are men who shaped me and formed me, but also I have to acknowledge deep indebtedness to black leaders who I've never met, like Frederick Douglass and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who I really can only know through their life stories and their messages and their teachings. And I have to also thank present guides in my life, like Dr. Raleigh Washington, actually the whole Washington family, if you know who they are, and I have to thank my friend, Pastor Robert Brown, who pastors Builders of the Faith right around the corner, who is a serious, serious friend, brother in Christ, and they're presently impacting my life. And what I want to do is I want to take us on a journey this morning, if you're willing. But first, we have to go back many, many centuries ago to a group of people whose story you know well. At a very, very early age in their history, these people were reduced to the bondage of physical slavery. It wasn't what they wanted but it's what happened to them. They came under the yoke of Egyptian rule, and they were there for about the same time that there has been an issue of racial inequality in our country, about 400-plus years. And into that scenario appeared a guy who connected his heart with God and who both agreed that they would had all they could stand, and a Moses appears on the scene and leads these people out of Egyptian slavery toward a bright and glowing promised land. We just read about that, right? But here's what happens. As soon as they got out of Egypt by crossing the Red Sea, they discovered that before they could get to the promised land, they had to go through a pretty long and difficult wilderness. And 
after realizing that this was going to be the case, there were three groups or three attitudes that emerged in, that, in, in the people, the people of Israel. One group wanted to go back to Egypt because they felt that the flesh pots of Egypt were more to be desired than the struggles that were involved in being set free. Then you had a second group that had no desire to go back to Egypt. They couldn't stand the idea of going back to Egypt, but yet they couldn't, they couldn't quite attain the discipline or the sacrifice that was, in, that, that was required to go on to the promised land. These people chose the path of least resistance. And then there was a third group, probably the, the, the creative minority. If you look at the spies that went in the land, there were two out of 12. So the creative minority who said in substance, we will go on in spite of the obstacles, in spite of the difficulty, in spite of the sacrifices that we'll have to make. And in every movement towards real freedom, whether it's the freedom you need in your heart or the freedom that a country needs, in every movement towards freedom and fulfillment and flourishing, you find those three groups. You find the group that wants to go back to Egypt. You find the group that will fight for freedom no matter the cost. And you find the group that's willing to hunker down and just be comfortable where things are. And this morning, I am mainly concerned with that second group, the individuals who don't want to go back to Egypt necessarily, but yet don't want to go on to the promised land, the individuals who, who would choose the line of least resistance. And as Moses was seeking to lead his people, he discovered that there were amongst their people those who would occasionally become so emotionally and sentimentally attached to a particular piece of land or a spot, maybe because something good had happened or maybe because they're afraid of something bad happening, that they wanted to stay there and remain stationary at that point forever. Let's just stop here. They wanted to camp somewhere between the land of slavery and the land of promise. And one day when Moses confronted the problem, he said, God has spoken to us. He told us at Mount Sinai, you've stayed long enough at this mountain. It's time to get up and go, to take the journey and go to the land. And this was a message of God through Moses. And whenever God speaks, he says, go forward when these situations exist. In substance, you cannot become bogged down in mountains and situations that will impede your progress to the places I want you to be. This is what the Lord says. You must never become so complacently adjusted, so attached to unobtained goals. You have to recognize when the Lord speaks, you've been in this mountain long enough. Turn ye and take the journey. And in a really very real sense, each of us, each and every one of us is living in a wilderness of some sort, moving towards some sort of promised land of freedom and fulfillment. None of, how many of you would say you're there? You've reached and achieved all that God wants. You are entirely sanctified and you are living, abiding, and ruling, feeling the rule and reign of God in the promised land that he has set out for you. The story of the Jewish people has been repeated and it has countless examples through history over and over again of their struggle to reach the promised land in total. And our faith tradition, our Judeo-Christian faith tradition, envisions not just a literal land of Israel, but also we envision the promised land as the kingdom of God, a time when the will of God will reign supreme and brotherhood and love and right relationships order society, right? Where God returns and everybody knows who's in charge and everybody loves everybody. Anybody get that that's what's coming? That that is the... the 
totalitarian desire of the rule and reign of the kingdom of God. But in every age and every generation, people have dreamed of some promised land of fulfillment or freedom. And whether it was the right promised land or not, they dreamed of it. Whether it's been the right promised land or not in your life, you've, been, you've dreamed of it. I want to get somewhere that I'm not there. But in moving from some Egypt of slavery, whether in the intellectual or cultural or moral or philosophical or literal realm towards some promised land, there's always the same temptation. We get bogged down in a particular mountain, in a particular spot, and we become victims of our own desire to just hunker down in a stagnant place of complacency. And so I want to deal with a couple of these symbolic mountains that we've been in long enough that we must move out of if we're going to go forward in our world and if we're going to survive and thrive. And so if I have your permission, I just want to cover a few. All right? So the first one, and I want to tell you, I, I, um, I kind of joked at the beginning about needing a lot of affirmation. I don't. I, I, I believe that there is a prophetic call on the church to, um, to speak prophetic words and not worry about smoothing out ruffled feathers. So I, I'm going to do my best to declare the word of the Lord, and you can, and, and I'll, as I'll say at the end, we need to talk, let's talk. The first mountain that I think we get stuck in is the mountain of moral relativism. We have to move from the mountain of relativism to the promised land of capital T, truth. Church, we must continue to stand for truth. We have to trumpet truth and cling to moral and ethical values as truth. You know, and I'm convinced that if we are to move forward and to be the body of Christ, to be the pure and spotless and radiant bride that Jesus is returning for, we have to disciple individuals with a keen sense of absolute truth. We have to raise our children with a sense of absolute moral and ethical truth. We need to know deep inside of us that there are certain moral laws in the universe just as there are certain basic physical laws that you can't, you can't, you, they will rule, they will hold. And in a very real sense, there's something in the universe that justifies what the French philosopher Carlyle said, no lie can live forever. There's something in the universe that justifies William Cullen Bryant in saying, truth crushed to earth will rise again. Jesus personifies this. There's something in the universe that justifies James Russell Lowell in saying, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. There's something here that just exists in the structure of our universe that justifies the Apostle Paul writing, you shall reap what you sow. This is a law-abiding universe, and we must move out of the mountain of moral and ethical relativism, and your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, that we've been in for too long. The second mountain that we got to move out from is the mountain of segregation. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Jeff, this is not 1968. This is not 1972. I, I lived in a place in South Florida where a man, while I was in third grade or second grade, named George W. Allen, whose son I, I knew, who was the head of the NAACP, sued the school board of Broward County for forced integration, that we would integrate. And I, so I know 
that this isn't 1970 or 1971, but we have not moved on from the ideology of segregation. We have not moved on from the idea of there is legal segregation versus a philosophy of segregation. And what I mean by segregation is the idea that we are better off living separate lives, separating people into distinct groups and remaining distinct in those places. Let me be clear, I do not believe in a colorblind theology either. One day God's going to melt everybody together into one big vanilla wafer. Vanilla wafers are great in banana pudding. But that's not God's plan to melt us all into one thing. We will, we will and we should embrace who we are and how God made us. So I'm not talking about the legal aspect of segregation. I'm talking about the philosophy. And I want to tell you why it's wrong. Segregation is wrong because it relegates individuals to the status of things. It makes property out of people rather than taking the very high moral position of elevating people to the status of humanity. Segregation is wrong because it assumes that God made a mistake in creating people in his image, everyone in his image. And it's wrong because at best, it only highlights our differences. It says, let's break into groups so we can see what's different, which those differences are beautiful and worth celebrating and preserving. But at the same time, it's fueled by this underlying attitude of inequality. It stands in the face of what is maybe the greatest American creed that we have to trumpet to the world, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable, inalienable rights. And the underlying philosophy, the ethic or the nature of segregation, it's diametrically opposed to the underlying foundation of democracy and the underlying truth of Christianity. We are all equally made in the image of God. Jesus died for all people equally. It's worth noting, though, to make it clear that in our struggle to end this deeply embedded attitude of segregation, we are not struggling for people of color alone. We are struggling for white people as well because as white people, we will never flourish if we have a segregated view of the world. It's disastrous. It's a disastrous practice for the age to come when Jesus will gather around him all people of all nations and all tribes together, gathered to worship him and to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. And you, if you're like, man, I believe in segregation, I don't think you're going to like heaven. We are struggling to save the soul of our country and our church, and we have to move from this mountain. We are, and when we move from this mountain, we are moving toward the land of all lives matter. But we're not there yet. We must demand equal respect for the value of all human life. Now, let me just finally touch on the mountain. I don't even know what to call this one, so I'm just calling it the mountain of me first. And I want to just share my story as a way of discussing this mountain. I'm not sharing my whole story, but I want to share my story in a specific way. Not in a way that's a trump card to, to, to shut you down and say, this is my story, you can't argue with me. I invite conversation. I invite your story as well. I'm 55 years old, and if you can't tell, I am a thoroughly white man. Some would say almost translucent. I do get red when I get in the sun. 
And I have experienced life in this country as a white man with all the privileges that come with my race and my middle class. I have, that's how I've experienced my life in this country. My upbringing was middle class. I, 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 I could, if you take me aside and, and you want to spend the time, I could lay out for you stories upon stories upon stories of what my upbringing was like in the Deep South. And not one time in my life have I feared that I would suffer injustice simply by virtue of being white. Not once. So I come respectfully and with humility to my dear friends and especially to my co-laborers of color and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It shouldn't be this way for you. And from my perspective, I'd have to say that I'm compelled. I feel compelled personally to sit in Shiva. If you don't know what sitting in Shiva means, look it up. With black Americans who are forced every time there is some sort of racial event they were forced in that to rehearse not just the event, but the entire history of suffering and oppression. It all comes back up. And you, I, we don't understand this if we've not lived it. If it's not our experience, you don't understand that every time something happens that, is, that, 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 that feels unjust, that it, it brings a whole history to mind. I've been thinking a lot about analogies that I think help to get this across, and they, they aren't worth saying now because analogies break down and they're going to take too much time. But I want to tell you, we must lament. We have to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's what Romans 12, 15 says. But I'm certain that's not enough to lament. I'm certain. I, I've heard repeatedly from friends and from black leaders who Brian and I have spent a ton of time in the last. I've, I've been full-time working with people who I think can help to make a real difference in this world. And my black friends, my black pastoral leaders who are in my life have said to me with great grace, something has to be said, though our white friends are silent. We can't hear you. And so I'm only talking about me, not talking about you, but I have a leadership role in the body of Christ, and I'm compelled to speak. Black people in America are guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Everyone agrees with that, right? But they've never been able to cash that check. It keeps bouncing. And somehow the message they get from the bank teller is all checks matter, but unfortunately your black check matters just a little less. We have insufficient funds to cash that check, that black check. But I in the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., refuse to believe the bank of justice is bankrupt. White Americans, especially those of us in the household of faith, have to make good on that promissory note. We have to cash the check that will give black Americans, again, as Dr. King says, the riches of freedom and the security of justice. There's a lot to do. Best thing for us to do is to take the best thing for us to do was to take action 400 years ago, to borrow from a Chinese proverb. The second best thing to do to act is to do it today. And, 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 and actually, what I'm believing and realizing is most of the action should start today, but I'm heeding the advice of black clergy who I am in deep conversation with to set a marathon pace because most of us will move on as quickly as the news cycle resets. 
So can I share with you a bit of what I'm doing on a personal basis in the hopes that maybe you would help somebody here? Thank you. One, I'm asking the Lord to renew my heart through repentance. Now that might hit you hard. You might say, I have nothing to repent for. I'll say, okay, I'm not pushing something on you, but maybe you need to go to the Lord and ask him. I know I do, and I am asking the Lord to renew my heart, to tenderize my heart in the areas of repentance. The second thing I'm doing is I'm asking the Lord to renew my mind through listening and through learning. I love, I've read so much. I read all the time, and I have read so much in the last week. It's not even fun. My brain is spinning, and I believe that most of, of the racism that remains in our country today is not fueled by hatred. I, I deeply believe that it's not fueled, mostly not fueled by hate, but by lack of knowledge. And most of your Christianity, most of what it means for you to follow Jesus occupies the place of your mind. Most of what it's going to take for you to become a, a better follower of Jesus is involved in your mind and learning and listening and, and, and asking Jesus to come into that place. And I have been compiling, compiling a list of resources that I'm not quite ready to give. It's not exhaustive. It doesn't mean to be. But I want to give to you books, sermons, movies, whatever it may be, that I think are valuable resources in helping us to listen and to learn and to be involved in, in, in the process of the renewing of our mind. And the third thing I've done is I have approached my closest ministry peers of color and given them permission to hold me accountable for the rest of my life. I've said, look, I want to stand with you, and I, want to, I don't want, you know, I know you're, you've heard a lot of that in the past, but I want to stand with you for racial equality, for the, for, the, for the healing that needs to happen in our country between races and for the flourishing of black lives. I'm not talking politics. If you have been around me at all, you would know that I am not political. I don't have a party affiliation. I haven't voted for a winning president in a long, long time. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I have deeply, that deeply concerns me and makes me anxious right now is that we're in an election year. And I've been here, this will be the fifth election that I've been here for. And every one of them has been hard. For us as pastors, they've been really hard. We've lost people in our church every election cycle. I'm not looking forward to it. So I'm not talking politics, so don't politicize this on me. What I want to do is I want to make this conversation a fundamental part of our gospel witness. I want to invite you or exhort you to declare that you're willing to die for anyone and everyone that Jesus died for. To me, going all in for Jesus means you're willing to lay your life down for anyone and everyone he's willing to die for. So make the gospel permeate in everything you do. Every trip to the store, every time you leave your house, every time you greet your spouse, every time you wake your children up, every time they go to bed, every meal you make, every gathering you go into, here is the right answer for you. If you want to know where you should start and what you should do, as soon as you can, as soon as it's safe, I know that we're still struggling with the coronavirus, but as soon as you can, fling open your door. Fling open the door to your home. That's the answer. Fling open the door to your home, drop your defenses, and get people around your table. 
if you want to get anywhere in this world, you're going to have to build relational equity. Because I'm going to tell you something right now, particularly with regard to the races, not very many black people trust white people enough to have honest conversations. Not, very, not too many white people trust black people enough to have honest conversations. So white people have white convers awkward, honest conversations with white people, and black people have honest conversations with black people, but very rarely do we have conversations that are awkward and honest between each other. Because we don't have mutual trust. Brian and I sat in a meeting the other night with, and, a, and a very prominent bishop said, I'm not sure I know you guys well enough to be honest. I'm not sure you, you guys will love me still. And we've got to get to the point where we can drop our defenses and get to the awkward spots and still love each other. We have to bear criticism. It's okay. We can learn from every bit of criticism, whether it's right or wrong. I, look, I have, I have a master's degree in theology, but I, I have an unofficial doctoral degree in criticism. I, re, I can give it and I can take it. And I'm not asking for it to go away. I welcome it. Even the most ridiculous criticism I face in my life helps me grow. Brian, are you going to play anything to, to end? If so, come on up, because I'm wrapping up. Man, I just got to take you to Sunday school for just a second, just to finish. Jesus is the answer to everything. You're struggling right now with something, and you're going like, man, I'm stuck on this mountain. I got to move. Jesus is the catalyst to moving, and he's the promised land. He's both the fuel to make you move and the destination of where you're going. He's the answer to everything. And I want to just invite you to think about the final chapter and let that inform how you live and love people today. At the end of the story, Jesus, who's the answer to everything, is going to return and set everything straight. Maranatha. But I don't want him to return and find me silent, lukewarm, or fearful. He won't return to find a bride that looks like that. He will not return to find a bride that looks like that. So I borrowed this, the theme of this message, time to move from this mountain, from somebody. And I want to end this message the same way Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. ended this message when he delivered it more than 50 years ago. He said, I speak as one who has been battered often by the jostling winds of adversity, but I have faith in the future. I have faith in the future because I have faith in God, and I believe that there is a power, a creative force in this universe seeking at all times to bring down prodigious hilltops of evil and pull low gigantic mountains of injustice. If we will believe this and struggle along, we will be able to achieve it. Keep moving. Keep moving from this mountain, for it well, may well be that the greatest song has not yet been sung. The greatest book has not yet been written. The highest mountain has not yet been climbed. This is your challenge. Reach out. Grab it. Make it a part of your life. Reach up beyond cloud-filled skies of oppression and bring out blazing stars of inspiration. The basic thing is to keep moving. Move out of these mountains that impede our progress to this new and noble and marvelous land. Langston Hughes said something very beautiful, beautiful in this poem, Mother to Son. Well, son, I'll tell you, Life for me ain't been no crystal stair. 
It has had tacks in it, splinters, boards torn up, places with no carpets on the floor bare. But all the time, I've been a-climbing on and reaching landings and turning corners and sometimes going in the dark where there ain't been no light. So, boy, don't you stop now. Don't you sit down on the steps because you find it's kind of hard. For I still going, boy, I still climbing, and life for me ain't been no crystal stair. For most of us, life has not been a crystal stair. But we're something we have to learn from the broken grammar of that mother, that we got to just keep moving. If you can't fly, run. If you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl. But keep on moving. And if you need to talk, if we need to talk, let's talk. I love you. Let's pray. When I'm done praying, Brian's going to play. If you're at home and you have communion ready, take it. Institute it and receive it. We're not doing it here because we didn't figure out a safe way to do it this week. Those of you who are here, go home and serve your family communion. If you're here and you want to, maybe you want to move from where you are as a representation of just moving from your seat to moving to an altar as a sign of your desire, your willingness, not to, uh, to heed the words of a preacher, but to hear the word of the Lord. And maybe you want to just come and kneel. Maybe you want to move in, in the place of your heart just into a place of prayer before the Lord. I'll trust you to do that, but I'm going to, pray. Jesus, move me. I pray, Lord, that you would renew my heart and my mind in a place of of movement, that you would help me to, to move beyond the stuck places of my life, wherever they may be. And man, I could give you a long list, Jesus, of places where I, 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 I have hunkered down. Sometimes I'm too satisfied with, uh, something like the state of my marriage because I can compare it to somebody else's and say, well, I'm doing good, but Lord, help me to be a better husband. Help me to move from where I am or my parenting or my leadership. Lord, I want to be consistent in my leadership and so I want to move from any stuck place where I have in any way, shape, or form caused or allowed or spoken into or not spoken against the devaluing of human life in any form. So Father, when I when I say the words of a sentence, if I say something like black lives matter, I can't figure out a way to amend that sentence to make it better. So I'll say it and pray it. Lord, I invite you to the table of our conversations that you would be the unspoken, unseen listener, that you would guide and guard our hearts as we do gather around tables. And I pray we would gather around tables. Give us depth in relationship, relational equity that matters. Jesus, those in our homes who are gathering around a physical place right now to break bread, to share in your body and blood, I pray that you would enter into that space in a very real but mysterious way, that there would be healing in the taking, in the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup. Jesus' name.